Hey everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so this week I am once again joined on the show by Mick Williams of Williams Racing Products and Trinity MTB, and we brought Mick back on because he has made a ton of progress on the very cool, very exciting gearbox design that he's been putting together for the V3 Trinity prototype bike. And so we just wanted to check in on the status of that project, hear a whole lot more about his gearbox, which I think looks outstanding, and just check in on how the bike development's going in general. Mick's always really good at just being super open and talking us through what he's been up to and how the prototype process is going, and this is another really good continuation of that whole series. So check out our earlier episode with Mick if you haven't already, and I think you'll enjoy this one too. But before we get into it, I do want to just take a moment to point out our Blister member deals, which are available to folks who are subscribing members to Blister, because we've added a lot of really good stuff to the list in the last couple of weeks, including 15% off apparel from Kitsbo and 7Mesh, 15% off Ride Concepts shoes, and we've extended our deal on we are one to not just include wheels and their cockpit setup but it's also now applicable to complete bikes and frames through the end of the year so that's a big one and there's great stuff from high above and seven idp and a whole lot more in there too so check it out become a blister member and save yourself a whole bunch of money on some really good gear so with that let's get right to my chat with mick Well, Mick, great to sit down and chat again. How have things been? Yeah, super busy, like real busy. Um, I think we were just talking off air before, but yeah, every month seems to just go up and up and up and sort of your your threshold level just sort of seems to be able to increase somehow. But um, yeah, been been real busy. We were at Crankworks Cairns last month. I was kind of juggling the the rider slash you know trinity debut engineer guy so that that was really busy um and uh obviously works works just flat out so um yeah every month the sales keep going up which is which is a great thing but um yeah um it's been busy i've got it got a new intern on now so um yeah he's a gun he's he's doing all the packing and shipping and and whatever so um yeah no things are going good Good to have things moving on and upward. And saw you had a post on Instagram a couple of days ago of the pile of Enduro links going out, and uh, oh yeah, that was a whole lot of them. So yeah, I, I don't know how many were there. Um, yeah, I don't know a fair few, one hundred and fifty or something. Yeah, yeah, must have been something like that. It was a whole yeah. lot. So cool to see things progressing. But really, kind of here to sit down and chat about the progress on the Trinity bike, including the gearbox, and we've chatted about this couple of times now but uh there has been quite a lot going on since we last sat down so i figured it was time for an update and here's some here's some of the latest so as you kind of touched on you were at crankworks cans not long ago and did a heap of riding yourself but then also were basically debuting the v3 prototype and well i guess just to kick it off i'd be curious to hear a little bit about 
what all's changed since V2 and where you're at on that at this point. Yeah, cool. Um, so, yeah, as you touched on, so, yeah, I was at, at Crankworks Cans and, like, I will say, like I kind of touched on it before, but there was that delineation between kind of quote-unquote like athlete and, you know, Trinity WRP guy because, yeah, rode, rode every event other than slope style, which was, which was real cool. Um, but it, it was really stressful with the, with the V3 because I actually had never ridden that bike prior to that event. We literally put it in the bike box warm from the welder and uh, <laughs> we'd ridden around the car park, but like le- legitimately, that that was all. Um, so um, things had changed quite a bit since V two as well. Like it what because I had done a fair bit of time on V two, um, so picking up V three wasn't necessarily just swinging a leg over the same as V two. Like things had changed quite a bit, so. V2 was a, a medium, which sort of suited me. V3 was a large. We wanted to make we want to make a large. Um, so it, it was probably a little bit big for me, but the point being was like we didn't want to make another medium. We wanted to make a large, see if the geo kind of checked out and all that type of stuff. The kinematic had changed slightly. Probably the biggest thing was like we were running Fox gear on it. I've never ran Fox before. I do have a set of Mizoki um, DJ forks on my dirt jumper, but. DJ forks are DJ forks, right? Like you just pump them up as hard as they go and slow rebound. It's the same. Right. Hardly moves anyway. Barely matters. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, as I was saying, it was it, it was pretty funny. Like in hindsight, to kind of look at it, you're like, that's a bit nuts because, um, you know, rocked up, we rocked up to Cairns, got there a day or so early. Um, and... Yeah, like I was saying, I like I had been an invited rider to Crankworks before, um, but it was during COVID, so I couldn't get out of the country. So this was actually the first time that I'd ridden at a Crankworks as an invited rider, which which was pretty sick. Like I kind of <laughs> half of me wanted to go just as a rider and leave the Trinity at home because it would have made it such an easier, less stressful time. Um, but yeah, like day one, we had downhill practice in the morning. Um, and it was super busy, man. Like I got one run of pre- one run of practice. I'd never ridden that track before on a brand new bike, so I literally just dawdled down, like literally like walking pace, just kind of having a bit of a look at the track, feeling out the bike. I ended up getting one run of practice, and then um, had to had to go pick up my dirt jumper because I had speed and style practice, right? And so like went up, rode rode speed and style. And uh, ended up actually having a huge crash in practice, which I wasn't kind of stoked about because day one of competition, right? So um, uh, didn't crash on a trick or anything. I just uh, flipped one of the flipped one of the ramps, went into a corner, and the corner was just totally blown out and just like chucked me over the bars. Had a bit of a hugey, and uh, like day one, I was like, dude, like I said to Nigel, who's like part of Trinity, I'm like, man, I. I don't know if I'm going to keep riding. Like I'm pretty banged up. Um, kind of went back up, did my race runs for speed and style, got through that, and then that evening was whip off. And um, like quite legitimately, those those whip off jumps at Cairns were huge, and they'd just been built too. Like they hadn't had many tires over them at all, and uh, I'd never really well, I hadn't jumped the Trinity. Like I might have got off the ground in my in my practice run in downhill that morning, but it would have only been like 
you know, I was only going down at kind of walking pace and I'm not going to lie, like I was pushing up the hill and I was like, dude, this could be a huge mistake. One of my friends goes to me, he's like, you know, Mick, if you come up short and like snap that Trinity in half, like that's probably the company done and dusted. And I was like, yeah, dude, yeah, don't I know it? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I could keep going on forever about the whole week, but that was kind of day one, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, it didn't miss a beat. Got through the jumps and uh, had a had a hell of a good time with the boys. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was good. It ended up, the way the race run ended up going was uh, I ended up getting a flat, which I was really pissed off about, a front flat too. Like it was a rear flat, I just would have bashed it to the bottom. But um, I was only a couple of corners in. I hit something like, and I just saw sealant come out the side of the, out the side, and I was like, "Oh, you're joking!" Ended up crashing, but like it wasn't much of a crash. Like just kind of tipped over, and um, yeah, just just debeated the tire. And I, I think part of it might have been so. As I was saying, that like the schedule at, at Cairns was just so so busy, and in no way is it having to go at the coordination of the event or anything like that. But I only had two practice runs the whole event. So that one on the first day, I was saying about I got another one the second day. And a lot of it was because, like I was saying, it's kind of trying to juggle being athlete guy and Trinity guy. Um, so because I was doing so many events, I was kind of having to leave early to go to another event, all that type of stuff. But I only get, got two runs of practice. And then on race day, like downhill race day, they had some crashes in the morning. So the schedule had kind of been pushed back. And it was looking like for a while that they were just going to make us drop in for our race run with no practice on that day. Um, and I think like that was obviously like that, that's not a good idea. So what they said to us because of the live broadcast, like we had to, we had to do the race run. So like, all right, you, obviously you're going to have to do a practice run, but we're going to send you down for practice in your race run order. So when you get to the bottom of the track, you like, don't go back to the pits. There's no faffing around, like just get straight back on the shuttle, come up and you're going to basically drop straight in for your race run. So that that was all sweet, but point being is, I've never not checked pressures or bolts or anything like that before a race run. So there's a chance in that practice run I've burped a little bit of air, like only a couple of pairs or something like that, because I got to the bottom, just jumped straight back on the shuttle, came up. Um, so look, that's um, I could be wrong on that, but it's kind of coincidental that I've I've never not checked pressures or whatever right before a race run. And, end up getting a front flat but who who knows yeah that'll get you i mean it's just a wild schedule to have been trying to put all that down while showing off the new bike and juggling all of that has to have been just <laughs> total chaos yeah it was it was pretty intense you yeah and you're chucking chucking having crashes on top of that but um it was pretty intense i mean like at the end of the day i think um like all of the all of us three Trinity guys, um, but yeah, speaking for myself, I mean, I just like ride my bikes. It's um, it was pretty, it was pretty kind of, it was pretty cruisy at the time. But in hindsight, I was like, yeah, no wonder I felt pretty washed out <laughs> afterwards. Um, yeah, it was a pretty big schedule, but yeah, I mean, that doesn't really sound like the best environment to be on your A game with, just jumping back and forth between 
all of the different events and exhibiting and new bike and new suspension and all the rest is just a lot of variables to be figuring out all at once there. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, there's no excuses for my side of thing. Like it was, it was a sick time. Like I think, um, and it's, it, it was kind of hard to compartmentalize it afterwards. Cause like, obviously people were stoked on the bike and everyone was messaging me being like, Oh, you got to be so stoked on how the event went, whatever. And like, there was part of it, like, again, like putting the engineer hat on and then the rider hat on like, as a rider, it felt like a failure, right? Cause I didn't get the bike to the bottom. Like it was a DNF cause, um, yeah, front flat fourth corner in, I just pushed it to the top and I'm like, all right, I'm getting back on the shuttle. Like I can't like particularly that track, you can't ride with the front flat. Um, so as a rider, it felt like a total failure, right? Um, but from an engineering point of view, it felt like a huge success because I'm like, well, we've got the bike here. The bike didn't miss a beat. Obviously, we had a front flat. I did, I did wreck a chain ring um, in one of the practice days, but like the bike itself, like the, the frame and all that, did not miss a beat, which I was super stoked about. Um, and obviously, got got great viewership and all that type of stuff. So like. Yeah, I don't know. It, it depends which hat I want to look at it through. But, yeah, I think overall it was uh, it was real good. Everything that we've been seeing about the new bike on social media and all the rest has been looking pretty promising. So let's get into that a little bit more. We've talked about it a bit on prior episodes, kind of the modular drivetrain program you've got going. and uh, But really the highlight of it right now, I would say, has to be the progress that you've made on your own gearbox. So just tell us about where that's at and what the latest is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, anyone that's been keeping up with with sort of my program knows that I've been working on alternative gear, quote-unquote gearbox mechanisms for like, well, it's about 12 months now, um, which... It's actually, I guess, not a not a long time, but um, I think I used the term on I think the last podcast that I did with with you, and uh, it kind of come out of nowhere, but it kind of stuck. But the term like kind of mistaking my way to perfection, <laughs> and um, like I've just tried, and it's a little bit like anything with the WRP thing, but I've tried not to have too much of an ego with it, particularly when you're pushing something. Um, pushing something that's kind of pushing the boundaries like the gearboxing like um like i was going through my instagram last night and real like i had a look at the the first version it was not even a version like it's just like the first contraption that i came up with with like the axis derailer hanging off the frame on the left hand side and i was like oh dude that looks so shit but like I mean, it's evolution, right? Like I've tried not to have an ego too much with it to be like, this is what I'm working on. I'm going to post it, see what the feedback is. And like, you know, a lot of people were pretty, were pretty stoked on where it was going. I'm like, you know, I'm, like there's something here. Like there's there's something to this. Like it's obviously it's, it's early days, but there's something that needs to be explored with this. Um, and then the second one rolled around and that like that worked, but like it didn't shift under load. Um which was kind of obvious once I built it, just the way that the chain was routing uh, meant that it worked fine. But as soon as you loaded it up, would put tension onto the tensioner. Um, and then kind of had a bit of faffing and it was actually um, at National Champs earlier this year down in Tasmania. Um, kind of had a bit of an epiphany, I guess, 
and then later found out that other people had done similar type of things back in the day in rear hubs. Um, but like had a bit of an epiphany that um, what I really needed to be doing was shifting the cassette, not worrying about shifting the chain per se. Um, and I think that was kind of the big breakthrough where I'm like, oh, this is going to be the thing that this is the catalyst that changes the gearbox concept. Um, so, yeah, started sort of pursuing that and I had had a derailer in the system for a little bit and then the second epiphany was just sort of working out, well, hang on, if I'm shifting the whole cassette, then I don't need a derailer. Like all I need is a tensioner um, because you're derailing the chain by default of moving the cassette, if you know what I mean. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I've been working on this one really for only a couple of months, but um, it's a little bit like it's a little bit like anything. Like the the best solutions end up falling out kind of easily. Like I know it might look a little bit complex on the on the surface of things, but it's really not that complicated at all. Like if you actually broke down the whole system into individual parts and then broke down a conventional derailer into all its individual parts, this is actually a lot simpler. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it just, as soon as I started sort of scratching the surface on the idea, it just kind of fell into my lap. Um, um, and, and it just sort of continues to, which is, which is really good. So, um, yeah, got the center of mass really low and that like, there's like a full nerd out, but there's just so much that I've gone into it with like, um, like really tried to focus on on the mass and where that's centered. Like just say like when your cranks are a flat, is your forward most crank like the the concentric point of your spindle? So like the middle of your pedal spindle is concentric to the front most portion of the of the spinning cassette. So like the weight's perfect. Um so yeah, put a put a fair bit of thought into it, but yeah, it just kind of it keeps falling out in a positive direction, which is really good. It's the right way to be moving. Bunch on there that I want to touch on, and I guess to start, just the thing you said kind of early in that bit about the first version that had the axis derailleur mounted up in the middle of the frame. It's funny, like yeah, that wasn't particularly refined and the cleanest looking thing ever, but. That was that version of it was what really kind of got me excited about what you were up to in the first place. And I think that was true for a lot of people. And it's like I, I, I've sort of seen this go both ways with projects like this in the bike world where sometimes someone puts out a what is clearly a prototype and not super refined, not super dialed, but the start of something cool and Sometimes people kind of get that it's a prototype and that it's not the final production ready version, but can understand where it might be headed. And other times I've seen people kind of just on the internet pile on and be like, oh, well, looks kind of weird and blah, blah, blah. And like not really grasped that this isn't meant to be a production ready thing. It's not final. It's not perfect yet, but it's starting somewhere. And it sort of seems like for whatever reason, yours has sort of caught on to the former path where people have been just excited to follow along and see how it goes, which is 
certainly cool. It's like the, you know, right way to be looking at it. Right. But does it feel that way from your end or has there been more sort of pushback on some of those earlier ones? Um, I mean, it's, it seems that way in hindsight. Yeah. Um, but at the time it's, it's a multifaceted question, right? Cause in hindsight, yeah, that like that, that seems the way it was, but at the time, like I was saying, I knew there was something there and it was worth pursuing. Cause it's like, um, I'm trying to sort of articulate it in words, but it's like when you don't really know what the answer is or how to get there, but you know, you know, there's something there, you know, there's something worth exploring, but at the same time, you've got that voice saying like, oh, I don't know if I'm just a kook for exploring this. <laughs> um, but, but at the same time, like the, uh, that version one, for lack of a better term, that version one, one, What's super funny about that is it's kind of like <laughs> it's kind of like any anyone that kind of knocked it. It's kind of like well, the joke's on you because quite legitimately, what I was sitting here, um, I was sitting here one one evening, and the, the version one Trinity was sitting there, and I was just kind of staring at it, and um, I was like, geez, you know, you could legitimately put a derailleur on the frame, and it, in all of like an afternoon, 3D printed up a little hanger bracket, put that on the frame. And because it's an axis derailleur, right, like you don't need to route a cable or anything, literally bolted the, the derailleur there, got an old piece of chain, cut it to length, whacked it on, printed a little jack shaft, and I was like, meh, actually works. <laughs> and <laughs> posted it on Instagram not as a gimmick, like in no way as a gimmick, but as just a, oh, look at this, put it on the internet and then it just went, excuse the French, but like fucking wild. <laughs> and like people were going nuts for it. And um, I was like, oh, like that's that's cool. The people are going nuts nuts for this. And I didn't really know what, what to take of it because, yeah, like I said, I literally spent like a day or so on it. Um, and the majority of that time was just waiting for the 3D printer to finish. Um, but in saying that, that's, I guess, what gave me the motivation to keep pursuing it because I'm like, geez, like there's something to this. Like if if people are going nuts for a, for a design that, you know, spent quite you know, so minimal time on, if this was actually pursued and perfected, then imagine what the reaction to that would be. Um and like obviously I knew that there was so much refining that could happen because that, that version one gearbox, there was no frame design done around having a gearbox. It was just a frame um, that was like pinion compatible um, and we made a quote-unquote a gearbox system to kind of adapt to it. I'm like, wow, like if you actually made, you know, um, geometrically, if you made a frame section where you could actually fit all this, then yeah, there could be something really powerful to that. So, um, I mean, yeah, it's all a positive evolution for me. I don't really, and like I enjoy people's feedback because it, it really kind of spurs me on. And that's to the large point, like kind of why I posted about it because there's been some products and you have to be like, there are some products that you, you, you really under wraps with because of, of patents and IP and all that type of stuff. Um, and there are some of, there's some of that with the gearbox for sure. But like 
the stuff that I have shown has been stuff like um, where, yeah, I just kind of wanted the motivation. And, like, more minds are better than one, right? Like, people will chime in and um, whether it's positive or negative, it'll um, a lot of the time kind of, I don't know, it's the feedback that you need. Any particular noteworthy bits of feedback that you've gotten over the last couple of iterations that have sort of spurred something key in the subsequent development or anything that stands out there? I think a lot of it is, um, I guess, just as like a blanket, like, you know, some pros will chime in and just be like, like, thank God someone's doing this or like, um, this is such a good idea, like keep going or something. And it's like, well, like, you know, kind of looked up to those and still do like look up to those people and it's like when you get something like that it's like all right i really have to keep going on this um so and just as much for me too like once it's out there and it's like i'm showing people what i'm working on it's kind of like a self-fulfilling motivation it's like yeah i have to go to work have to get it done because it's like yeah people know i'm working on it it's kind of like as as cliche as it sounds but like kind of um I don't know. You kind of depend. You kind of dependent on now to get it done. So, yeah, there's something to that of just putting an idea out in the world so that the rest of the world holds you accountable to press on with it. Well, yeah, I mean, if it's just a backyard project, it's like, well, what are the stakes? What are the stakes if you just never do anything? And it's like, well, nothing. So it's easy just to never do anything about it. Whereas, like, if it's out there and people know you're working on it, well, then it gives you this sense of responsibility to like. I have to finish this now. So. Yeah. Well, to bring it back around to the latest on the gearbox, though. So as you touched on already, basically, the latest iteration is it's kind of chain drive and still using a lot more conventional sort of de- derailleur drivetrain parts to an extent. But you've got this. Well, basically, the chain ring is mounted in the middle of the frame rather than outboard like on a normal bike. And then you've got a cassette in front of it with a tensioner in the middle and you're just sliding the cassette back and forth to shift. And uh, there's such a short run of chain that that's kind of all you need. And take us through just some of the sort of packaging details and stuff a little bit. Is it still fitting into the footprint or the mount pattern for opinion as you've been doing on the prior couple bikes or what's going on there? Oh no, 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 no. So we, so um, I never had a, I never had a gearbox mechanism that mounted to the pinion, um, to the pinion bolt pattern. Like it's quite compact. Like it's, it's really, really, really quite compact. Um, but um, so the version two frame is probably the best one to reference. So the way that we've designed the Trinity is you've basically got like a whole modular back end slash like pivot junction so like where all the pivots from the back end meet is all its own one piece of lattice so um you've got essentially like two bolt patterns on the trinity so with with opinion say like you've got like the six bolt pattern for the pinion and then you've got another bolt pattern that kind of looks like riveting above that that joins the chrome ollie mainframe to the aluminium bottom bracket junction that holds your main, that holds your rear pivots, and there's multiple reasons we did that. Um, from an engineering and, and construction standpoint, mainly was the reason we did that. 
what it opens the door to, of course, is that 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 sort of riveting pattern, if you will, essentially acts as like um, like my version of like the pinion six bolt bolt pattern. Um, so that's what it's kind of adapting to. So yeah, to go back to the question. So yeah, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. You basically just got a chain ring with a sliding cassette in front of it with a tensioner in the middle and what's kind of neat is the shorter the chain, the crisper the shifting is with that. Um, so it's like counterintuitive to a normal system, right, because you're trying to bend the chain along its length. Like the longer the chain stays, the crisper the shifting. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's kind of cool. And like I said, like a lot of this we've kind of stumbled on, like that that bolt pattern, like our kind of riveting pattern was designed around the trinity and like from an engineering and and architectural point of view of of the bike without a gearbox it just so happens that that's kind of the perfect geometry for for this um it's like tweaked it a tiny bit but um yeah it's coming out pretty neat yeah and so i've sort of referred to prior iterations of this as sort of being the continuation of the honda rn01 which suppose it is in a way but Design-wise, it's diverged a bit more now because the Honda, if I have this right, I'm remembering properly, that the basically that one had a cassette that was fixed, a more conventional derailleur mounted inside the frame, and then the chain ring was sliding in order to maintain alignment with the cassette over such a short run because like you were kind of saying before, right, you need to do something there when you've got the cassette and chain ring positioned so close together to not have the chain angle end up being horrendous. This is kind of a, in some ways, even simpler, better pared down version of it. But one thing I'm curious to hear a little more about is sort of the cassette and crank and all the bits that go into making this. Tell us a bit about like to what extent you're using conventional parts for all that stuff versus having to do some different things to make it all go together yeah i mean everything stock um and a big part of like what's in the what's in the gearbox uses like the center hub patents and that as well by way of um i mean you can run any crank brand on this that you want like you can run hope race face shram whatever doesn't matter um because there's still a conventional bottom bracket in there um with like a direct mount adapter so you can run any crank you want um and then the cassette and the shifter um all that is is dead stock so i mean all all that you need as far as the cassette is a single plated cassette like if you buy like a uh, like an x01 cassette you know it's like milled out of one piece of of metal um that's not going to work because you need um uh, well actually an x01 like a seven speed probably would you know but like to make it simple, like if you've got a single-plated cassette, then you can run any brand cassette you want, like Shimano, SRAM, whatever, as long as it matches with the shifter because obviously like the uh, like uh, the shift steps between brands change. Um, but like what I've got, what I've got in there at the moment is a 12-speed NX cassette, um, which is they're all individual plates um, other than like the top three or whatever but i just took like the lower six off so they're just individual plates 
with a GX 12-speed um, shifter. So you could do the same thing with a Shimano as long as it's individual plates. You just take six plates off, whack them in there. Um, and then all the tensions are is uh, a reverse components um, single-speed tension. So I've got two of them, one in, one inside, one outside. But, yeah, I mean, everything, like, as far as, like, everything that the chain is touching is dead stock and the shift is dead stock. It's, yeah, it's only, yeah, like, the mounting fixtures to house that is the stuff I've made, but everything is dead stock. So, um, and that's kind of the way I wanted it, right? Like, those guys, like SRAM, Shimano, whatever, have put so much time and energy into making a really efficient drivetrain through their chains and cassettes and, and chain rings and all that type of stuff. Like, I didn't want to mess with that. And also, like for the pro riders, right? Like if you've got a if you've got a drivetrain contract, and then I come along with a gearbox, and it's all not running stock internals, then their sponsors aren't going to be that happy. Whereas with this, it's like, well, what have you got a problem with? Because it's it's all your company's internals. Yeah, it's just rearranging it. I mean, and tons better just from a consumer standpoint too of having it be all the spare wear items are just normal stuff go into your regular bike shop and buy it you don't have to have anything weird you mentioned sort of you know the the present iteration and obviously it's a dh bike as configured presently so the six speed pared down because that totally makes sense what kind of limits on gearing range and cassette size would you have in the in the version of like if you were to configure it as an enduro bike and want to be able to pedal a little better what's going to be viable there yeah, so at the moment, like it's got eleven twenty-two on it. I'll try not to give too much away, but yeah, it's um, it's planned for like a five hundred percent range. So I already know I'm going to do it, but yeah, not going to give too much away on that one. Ah, fair enough. But but that yeah, that'll like there, there's an enduro version coming with an equivalent of a twelve speed. So. Right, that was kind of what I wanted to yeah. get at. Yeah, yeah, and so sort of still the same plan that we talked about last time of having the the bike be convertible between sort of DH and Enduro modes with yeah, yeah, different yeah. suspension and all the rest? Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. And the same goes right for on. Gearbox too. It's going to be a plug-in, plug-out system. So if you want to run a 6 or a 12, then um, it's all G. I'm sitting here looking at the bikes right behind you. How much ride time have you got on it with the gearbox because i know you've kind of just gotten the current iteration together pretty recently been on it yet i've been on it around the car park that's all like i i might have mentioned to you off air i had a pretty gnarly concussion at crankworks actually in in jewel slalom which i was pretty pissed about because i wanted to do well at that event but um yeah kind of had a bit had a bit of a hugey so i haven't actually haven't ridden any bike since and that's been three and a half weeks but um i'm starting to get I'm starting to get better now. So, um, yeah, I've ridden this around the car park, shifted it, all that type of stuff, put some power down, but um, haven't been on a proper ride yet, mainly due to my own personal circumstances. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, glad to hear you're on the mend and taking care of yourself and taking it easy for a little bit here, not uh, trying to do too much just yet. I mean, pretty exciting that it's there and works and – like I said, put some power down through it and got it going somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's the kind of the thing that was sort of most stoked with. And like, there's obviously like there's there's tweaks that you always have to make along the way. Like, um, you know, stuff if stuff works in CAD doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in 
work in real life like uh, I mean I can talk about it a little bit like um, for instance like um, like the return spring on the opposing side of the like shifter cable to actually bring the cassette back and to have it shifting against some resistance like that took a little bit of working out just how to get that how to get that tension right right like in your in your derailleur obviously you got a spring in there um uh, but yeah it's it's controlling a couple of things like the axial movement and the and the radial but um with this one you've only got the axial movement so i didn't really know what spring rate to run and the spring was too light so i bought a couple of more and that they still weren't right so like um i messed around with having so i've got like an adjustable spring rate in there now um so basically you can adjust just by winding a nut like how how snappy that um like your gear shifts are just to do with the spring resistance behind it which is which is kind of neat and then um the other thing is i had to make up just another bracket because i found that just the way i designed the box was that when you put power down, I knew this was going to be the case, but, like, I didn't think I'd need a bracket where I've now got a bracket. But, like, obviously because the cassette is in front of your cranks, when you put the power down, it's it's essentially trying to rip the cassette off. Like, it's trying to bring the cassette back to the crank spindle, right? Um, and it was... Just through the chain tension. Yeah, through the chain tension. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was trying to, like, splay the box open a little bit. So I've just put another... Um, another bracket in there just to to tie the two halves together so it can't splay. Yeah, well, it's cool to hear that it's coming together. And like I've said before on prior episodes, and we'll link to those in the show notes, just I think there's a ton of potential here for kind of combining sort of, in a lot of ways, the best bits of a derailleur drivetrain with what's good about gearboxes. And I mean just taking the weight off of the rear wheel for getting rid of unsprung weight, not having a derailleur that's hanging down off the back to get smashed off on a rock, but then still having the efficiency of a chain drivetrain because that's sort of been a shortcoming of gearboxes historically. And also just being able to use a normal paddle shifter. And there are starting to be some ways to make that happen on a some of the gearbox options as well, but they've been grip shift for a long time, which isn't ideal at least arguably for most folks and so i guess just sort of curious to hear like based on your i mean obviously car park test but probably more significantly just getting it all fitted up and having a real physical version of it in front of you because like you said you know you can have things that seem great in cad and it's not always borne out once you make some chips and have a real part and sort of see everything goes together like sounds like overall very sort of positive situation and things are working pretty well but any kind of obvious refinements that have popped up that you're already got gears turning on for whatever the next iteration looks like or kind of how are you feeling about where it's at presently there's one huge one and i like i'm really not going to give too much away because i'm working on it <laughs> working on some ip protection for the for that particular part um but like, and this is where I, like I start to get hooked on things, right? Because it's like you find stuff out, and you, you go through those physical reiterations that you didn't recognize in CAD. Then then you find something out that you didn't know previously, and like 
I know my mind anyway, it just like literally just explodes with possibilities. It's like, oh, I never realized this before. And having this product means that this would be now available. It's like, um, oh, this is going to get awfully like psychological, but have you ever heard um, of the term like fluid intelligence? Uh, no. Tell me more. So, so basically fluid intelligence, so you've got like baseline IQ and then you've got fluid intelligence and fluid intelligence peaks, like it depends on, on people and it depends on genders too, but but say like generally speaking it peaks in like your mid-20s and this is why like mid-20-year-olds really want to go like traveling and exploring and whatever and it's actually like neurological reasons and it's because what your brain will do is like find a um, – It'll find a situation it's never been faced with before. So that neurological circuit to overcome that problem doesn't exist in your brain because you've never you've never faced that position before. So you have to create a new neural pathway to actually overcome it, right? And like that is in some people, like that's addictive. And that's why people get addicted to traveling because it's like, oh my God, I'm faced with this situation that I've never, because like dopamine levels and all that go up once you've actually overcome that problem. And for me, I think that's why I like, like I love product development so much because you're faced with things that you've never had to face before. You didn't even know they existed to face before. So you come across them and you're like, I didn't even expect that this would be a hurdle. Now I have to overcome it. Um, and when you do overcome it, it quite legitimately creates a new neural pathway. And um, I think that that is, um, I mean, it's a compounding thing, right? Like if you do that once, and then you do it again, it's kind of like like to the square root, like 1 to 2 to 4 to 16, to, and it just keeps compounding um, in you know, product development space. So um, the gearbox has definitely been that, put it that way. Um, but I guess to come back to your question, um, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. And like so there are ways you can make a very efficient drivetrain through gearbox. What I should note about a gearbox is the efficiency isn't linear. So in some gears, it might be like 98, 99% efficient. In other gears, it might be like 80% efficient because it depends on how many cogs within or how many splines on the cogs within that box are actually meshing together. So, you know, in one gear, it might be more efficient than in another. And generally speaking, this isn't for every gearbox, obviously, but generally speaking, like your crawler gears are a, are a massive gear reduction. So you've got the most amount of gears contacting in your crawler gears. But, so you've got the least amount of um, efficiency. But your crawler gears are the gears where you want the most amount of efficiency. Because, <laughs> I mean, you don't really care. If you've got a little bit of efficiency zapped on the downhills, and you just want to put in a crank every now and then, that's not so much. But if you're hauling ass trying to get to the top of the hill, like really, you know, your tongue's hanging out your mouth, you don't want to feel like the brakes are on. So the good thing about a chain is like the efficiency of the drivetrain is the same in every gear. You've got the same amount of resistance. You've got a little, obviously like a bigger cog has got more teeth contacting the chain, whatever, but, but generally speaking, the efficiency output is the same percentage, which is a very high percent too. Like it's around like 97 to 99% efficiency with a chain and cog. The thing that zaps that efficiency, one is cleanliness of the drivetrain. 
So if you've got like a well-lubed and clean chain and cog, you've got very good efficiency. The other thing that zaps it, and this goes back to the pointers before, is obviously if you're in 52-tooth crawler gear and that chain is bending across its length, is that that's zapping efficiency. Um, and that's what sort of my box overcomes is because the chain line, no matter what gear you're in, the chain line is dead straight. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm not sure if that if that answers your question, but... Um, yeah, they're like I'm not not shitting on current gearboxes because they're they're great for certain reasons, but um, yeah, I think there's there's certain drawbacks too, and I think it's why, say, when Honda came along, the brand that Honda is, I think it was a no brainer for them to to go with that mechanism. So that's a good answer and just interesting thoughts on kind of how we've wound up where we are, but pretty excited to see how this is coming along and. I don't know, maybe too early to be getting into this, but any kind of updates on how you were thinking about when these actually might be ready for someone to put an order in for and kind of how you're coming along on getting ready to start selling some bikes? Yeah, so the one that you're seeing on Instagram at the moment is like three revisions behind where I'm currently at in the real world. Like I'm like I, I am posting a lot, but at the same time I'm cautious about what I'm posting just for brand integrity <laughs> point of view. Um, so I'm way, way further ahead than what you've seen on Instagram at the moment. So I've got another one on the bench next to me that's that's quite far along from the one that's in the bike behind me. And then I've got another one on my computer that's that far much again um, that's currently getting machined. So, um, I mean, Trinity sales, we're pushing for the end of the year, early 2023, which I think is achievable. Um, the box, I would like to be at the same point in time. I think it probably needs a little bit more testing. And it also depends, like to go back to the point about like where possibilities just, you know, go rampant in your mind. Uh, there's that fine line between bringing your product too, out too early and bringing your product out when it's kind of past its expiry date. But I would hope that the, the third version that I'm that I'm up to, which is currently getting machined, I think that that that'll be that'll be the one. Um, and if that works as intended, about the same time that the Trinity's released, I can't see a reason why we can't offer it pretty early up. I would say I'd say early next year for sure. And if the Trinity gets if the Trinity frame gets released before the gearbox is, is fully ready, yeah, I trust that we'll be able to find some type of, I mean, we know it works, right? Like we're just sort of refining things. So if the same don't launch exactly the same date, I'd like to think that we'd be able to offer some type of uh, like discount for already purchased buyers of the Trinity or, you know, something like that. Um, and the idea there would be that if the Trinity launches a little bit ahead of the gearbox, you'd do the just sort of machine conventional bottom bracket layout that you've, shown off a few times before to start with and yeah 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 literally the one we wrote at cans yeah 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 right yeah because uh, yeah the, the the conventional drivetrain on it works works flawlessly so um and and i mean also like it's adaptable to a to opinion or every year so you know those like those are all working working things so certainly yeah literally if the launch data gearbox and launch data the trinity don't line up perfectly then the trinity will be available with conventional drivetrain and or 
um, pinion effigy with the ability in the coming months to be able to, to be able to be adaptable online too. Throw it in there. Well, that's coming right up here. We're talking pretty soon now. Dude, don't remind me here. Yeah. Kind of early November yeah, right yeah. now as we're recording this. So, uh, well, I mean, that's certainly exciting. As far as the bike goes, any sort of noteworthy updates to the frame itself, gearbox aside, you mentioned building a large and testing out geometry on that. Any sort of notable refinements going in there or feeling pretty good about where that's at? Um, yeah, so V V2, we use printed lugs. So you had like a full printed head tube, uh, printed down tube cone, printed seat tube cone, and printed like top tube to seat tube junction. And um, we actually went away with for that on V3. We still had two printed parts. So you had the printed down tube and seat tube cones. Um, and... The reason we, we did it for a couple of reasons. So one being was the prints are actually like when you have that type of um, makeup, so you've got like a, a seamless chromo tube into a printed head tube. On V2, it was quite stiff, like very stiff um, and probably not overly heavy, but a little bit heavier than what we, what we wanted it. And, the other thing for the consumer was it wasn't that cheap because we don't have our own printer. So we're outsourcing that getting printed. Um, and then the quality control too, right? So like a printed head tube is quite um, like it's quite an eccentric part. Um, like the, the cones we can make really good. We know they're, we know they're solid. The head tube didn't miss a beat, but at the same time, like, as an example of what I'm saying, right? Yeah, I mean, you've got to ream a head tube once the frame's welded because by introducing heat and whatever, it'll it'll warp and twist a little bit and whatever. It'll go, um, it won't be concentric anymore. So the point being was you're spending a heap of money on getting head tubes printed to then have to post-machine them anyway once the frame's welded up. And it's like, well, if you're going to do that, then you kind of, you're decreasing the advantage, like the advantages of getting the, the, the head tube printed to begin with. Um, and the other thing was like, this is nitpicky, but I mean, you've got to be nitpicky because customers are going to be nitpicky. But um, the printed frame took away the handcrafted element of it, right? Because pretty much all you had to do was just chop straight tubes, plug them into the prints and weld it, which is cool, but... It's not handmade. It's not handcrafted. It's not all metered and notched and, you know, all that type of stuff, which is what Nigel's really good at. So we wanted to bring that aesthetic back in. So for V3, yeah, we've got like a traditional metered notched head tube and um, seat tube to top tube junction. We've still got the the, the prints on the, um, on the down tube and the seat tube, um, and they're really nice. And I will say, like, the frame felt so much better in a traditionally made way too. Like, it was much more compliant than the than the printed one was. Again, mainly just because you've got tubes overlapping a print, so that section's so thick. The wall thickness gets huge, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then you've got to have contingency on the backside of those lips into the print 
because you can't just have like a step, otherwise it would be a, a failure point. So you've got to have contingency there, which adds weight, adds stiffness. So this frame compared to V2, um, as far as like from a compliance point of view, felt so much better. Um, and then for V4, which would be like the production-ready one, like it's so funny because each time we talk about it, we're like, this is going to resemble production. While V3 is very, very close, we still have like about that much updating to go for V4 just to make it sort of that much better again, um, which it really will be. I mean, we're working on a few things, particularly, um, and it's probably not too premature to, to say, but um, we're working on, on the rear end, which I think will be really, really sick, is that... Um, basically like a more modular rear end so you you can have swap out stays so you can tune the flex of that rear end for the racer right because um, some people might like a more of a flexy rear end some people might like a bit more bit more stiffer um, obviously length and all that come into it as well but like as a shadow board what you see is is pretty well there it's just some minor things just to get this thing get the, get it bitching well just Good to hear that it's coming together. And uh, I mean, I mentioned this before, but on a prior episode, but it's just been really cool getting to follow along with the development of a bike, especially something with as much novel going on as this one, because so often we just get to see the finished product once it's ready to go and is out in the world. But uh, really enjoyed and am continuing to enjoy seeing what you're putting together here and how it's evolved as you've built and tested and learned more and put it all together. So uh, very cool to hear that things are progressing and getting relatively close to production. Fingers crossed all goes well, but yeah, yeah, no, thanks. I mean, it means a lot. And like, like I was saying sort of earlier, it's, I'd like to think it's a little bit of the bike of the people, you know what I mean? Like I think it would be awfully kind of self-centered to, to think that we've got the knowledge that one day we just come out with a bike and like we're like there it is it's ready to go because it's what that's basically saying is we have all the answers and we know exactly what we've done and here you go whereas i think that's awfully kind of narcissistic whereas <laughs> i kind of like showing people the development because it puts it to the people right you know you have a random comment from someone or whatever and it's and not just not just that like like I was saying earlier, it puts the owners back on you to be like, all right, the thing's moving. We've got to keep it going. Um, so we're kind of emotionally invested in it from the point of view that other people are emotionally invested in it. So I think anything but a really good product we'd kind of be embarrassed with. So, um, yeah, anyway, hope, yeah, hope that answers. Well, that's the attitude you'd hope you'd get from the guy developing yeah, the next bike. So... so. Certainly everything we're seeing looks really promising and just can't wait to see how things continue to go from here and hopefully get on one at some time before too terribly long here. So I, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Hopefully I can bring one over and, and give you guys a whirl. That'd be cool. Would certainly love to make it happen. So we'll keep chatting and uh, just keep up the good work. And thanks again for coming on, Nick been fun as always no thanks mate always uh, always appreciate it appreciate all your time and effort all right that's it for this edition of bikes and big ideas and i would like to say thank you to mick for the conversation 
Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody.